This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. In July, we had Steve Laddick of the University of Texas Law School on the podcast to talk about the shadow docket, the set of orders issued, usually on an emergency basis, outside the normal oral argument and opinion process. During the last week of August, the justices issued two major rulings on the shadow docket. The court rejected a request from the Biden administration to block a lower court order requiring the reinstatement of the Remain in Mexico policy, a controversial Trump-era program that requires people seeking asylum to stay in Mexico while they wait for a hearing in the United States. And two days later, the justices lifted a federal ban on evictions that the Centers for Disease Control had imposed to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. So we'd planned to put together an episode on the shadow docket in action. But little did we know that we'd get a third new ruling on the shadow docket, allowing a Texas law that bans nearly all abortions in the state to go into effect early Wednesday morning. So joining me to discuss all of this is the co-founder of SCOTUS blog, Tom Goldstein. Tom, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So the law at the heart of the Texas dispute, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go in reverse order of chronology. We'll start with the Texas case. The law at the heart of the dispute in Texas is known as Senate Bill 8, uh, sometimes called the a heartbeat bill. It bars doctors from performing abortions if they can detect a fetal heartbeat, which normally happens around six weeks. And generally state officials enforce state laws, but this bill specifically provides that state officials aren't going to enforce the law. Instead, the law is supposed to be enforced by private individuals who can file lawsuits against anyone who provides an abortion or aids and abets an abortion. And if they're successful in this lawsuit, they can get up to $10,000 in damages from people who are found to have violated the law. So those are the basics of, of the law. Can you talk, Tom, a little bit about how this lawsuit came up to the Supreme Court and why this unusual feature of the enforcement mechanism matters. Sure. Well, the enforcement mechanism was designed to prevent a challenge to the law and succeeded. The idea is that usually when states adopt abortion restrictions, Abortion providers sue the state officials who enforce the restrictions, and then the courts are able to decide whether the restrictions are constitutional or not. So you have a target for the lawsuit challenging the state law. Here, you have essentially a moving target because an abortion provider doesn't know what individual citizen might well sue them, so they don't have a defendant for the lawsuit. They may be, you know, complying with the law because they feel they have to. They might want to challenge the law, but there is no other party who they can say is really threatening them that day. It's a little bit of a game of whack-a-mole. Anybody that they think might well sue them can just say, no, I'm not going to do it. And there isn't a suit that can be brought at least in federal court. So abortion providers did, of course, challenge the Texas lawsuit in advance and did say that it was unconstitutional. And I think that 
under current law, pretty much everybody agrees that it's unconstitutional. That's the irony here, because under the Supreme Court's leading abortion precedents, this law prohibits abortion well before viability, which is the current line. And they were unable, however, to get a ruling at the appellate level uh, or the district court level because the courts of appeal, the court of appeals adopted a very unusual posture here. It started to get involved and prohibited the district court from issuing, holding a hearing in which it could decide the constitutionality of the statute. And the challengers went directly then to the Supreme Court. And in the Supreme Court, uh, we waited and waited and waited and expected a ruling before the statute went into effect and got nothing. And we eventually found out when we got a ruling the next night that what was going on is that there was a bitter fight inside the court among the justices. And there were lots of opinions being written that delayed a ruling. But the court five to four did refuse to block the Texas law from going to effect on the ground that the providers hadn't found somebody appropriate to sue. So let's break that down a little bit more. And then before we get to that, were you surprised, I guess, that the justices didn't act before the law went into effect? Well, yes and no. I think the justices probably were ready to act. They were ready to issue a five to four order saying they weren't going to block the Texas uh, statute. But as a practical matter, so many opinions were being written by the dissenters that they just weren't ready to be released. And so it was just a practical problem inside the building. Because they weren't enjoining the statute, the court, I think, didn't really mind not issuing a ruling and just keeping everybody waiting because the failure to issue a ruling just allowed the law to go into effect, which it was going to do anyway. So let's now, let's talk about the four dissenting justices. So you had, I think we had four dissenting justices and four different opinions. And we'll start, they all agreed on what the outcome should have been. They all thought that the law should have been put on hold, but they didn't all agree on the reasoning. That's right. Some members of the court were deeply concerned with the issue that you raised at the beginning, which is that this was done without briefing and oral argument. Some members of the court were deeply concerned that Texas had written a statute that was intended to evade review in federal court. Some members of the court were concerned with the fact that this was was an affront to the court's abortion precedent. But they all had the common theme that this law absolutely should not go into effect. And so Chief Justice John Roberts wrote his own dissent And he was really mostly concerned with process. He said in his dissent, the court's order makes clear, let's all be clear here, this is not a ruling on whether or not the law is constitutional. As far as I'm concerned, this is really about process. That's right. The chief did want to make clear that in his view, the court wasn't making major abortion precedent in the dark of night without briefing and oral argument. And that everyone should hold fire and wait and see what it's, the court's views are with respect to Roe versus Wade. So on an ironic level, he was defending the majority, even though he was a dissenter and saying, look, the majority is quite limited here. But the chief's concern really was an institutional one, 
which is no surprise, given that he is the chief justice of the entire federal judiciary, that Texas had gotten away with passing a law here that was intended to stop the federal courts effectively from doing their job of enforcing the Constitution. And he thought that the Supreme Court should at least put the law on hold until the lower courts could consider whether that was permissible. And Justice Sotomayor did not join his opinion, but Justices Breyer and Kagan did. And then Breyer and Sotomayor and Kagan all wrote their own opinions. Anything that jumped out uh, at you from, from those three dissents? Well, I do think that if the more liberal members of the court who you're mentioning had had a little bit more time, they probably would have coordinated more and would have gotten out, you know, a single opinion. I don't really see them disagreeing with each other in any particular way. It's just that when this came up and it was clear that their side was going to lose, they all started writing and there was an enormous push to get the thing out the door as soon as possible. They wanted, I think they all settled on by midnight the day after the statute went into effect. So I don't, I don't think there is a schism on the left. Uh, I think that they're deeply, deeply concerned about Roe versus Wade. They are deeply concerned about the broader trend that you identified of making big, big, big decisions with enormous consequences for Americans when there hasn't been full briefing or oral argument, they're doing these cases on an emergency basis and coming out in you know very strikingly conservative ways. I think that's a good point about the idea that the justices may just not have had enough time to coordinate. You know, it is now early September. You know, we don't even know that they are necessarily all in Washington D.C. Um, and because of COVID, where they're all working. So they may have, as you said, just have wanted to get something out the door. So let's look ahead. Um, what happens next in the Texas case? Well, the Texas statute is in effect. And um, the Supreme Court has said that it doesn't think that there is a clear right to an injunction the challenges will go forward. There are challenges in state court, there are challenges in federal court. And the statute is going to get challenged effectively quite soon in one of those two forums, because as soon as an individual person in Texas does attempt to bring a lawsuit over an abortion, you know, one of these private enforcement mechanisms, well, then there is a defendant to name. And the case can go forward. Really what the Texas legislature, Texas conservatives, Texas pro-life forces are relying on is the idea that the abortion providers will just be deterred from uh, providing a post-heartbeat abortion at all. And so there may never need to be an enforcement lawsuit or that those abortions will become extremely rare and they'll just let them slide through. But I would expect that by hook or by crook within the next two or three weeks, uh, there will be litigation that kind of uh, is effective and grabs hold and allows the challenges to the Texas statute to be decided, at which point it ought to be quite clear that the Texas statute is unconstitutional. There is another abortion case at the Supreme Court 
which is intended to be a vehicle by pro-life forces to narrow Roe versus Wade even more, or potentially overrule it. But I don't think it's realistic to think that they're going to go as far as Texas has here to say, you know, no abortions after six weeks. So I want to ask you um, to come back to that. But but before we do that, you know, Texas was not alone in enacting a, a, one of these so-called heartbeat bills. Um, they were the only one uh, right now to, whose heartbeat bill is in effect because of this enforcement mechanism. But are we now going to see the other states that had enacted them, they have been struck down or not in, otherwise not in effect. Are we going to see similar laws now with similar enforcement mechanisms in other states? Are the other states going to look at this and think, oh, wait, let's try this? Probably depends on how far Texas can go down the road without the statute being challenged. If there's a successful challenge in two or three weeks, then maybe other states will say, you know, what's the point? Um, you know, if the Texas statute is invalidated in a few weeks, then there's no real benefit to adopting the same thing. But if uh, abortion is functionally blocked in Texas after six weeks on the basis of this law, nobody can manage to bring a lawsuit, then certainly, you know, uh, just as pro-choice forces are committed to making abortion available, so too pro-life forces are committed to using every possible tool to prevent it. And that includes procedural things like the Texas enforcement mechanism. So it would be almost shocking if Texas's gambit succeeds to see other states not mimic it. All right, and now I want to go back to the, the Mississippi law, and this is a case that the Supreme Court will likely hear oral argument in in December. It hasn't been scheduled yet, but it's a challenge to a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after the 15th week of pregnancy. And as you said, um, the Mississippi has asked the Supreme Court to use this as a vehicle to overrule the court's decision in Roe versus Wade and its 1992 decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. So, you know, the Supreme Court's order Wednesday night kind of went out of its way to say, we're not saying that the Texas law is constitutional. We just have questions about whether or not we can block state judges and, and county clerks from from doing anything. Um, but on the other hand, right now, you can't get an abortion after six weeks in Texas. So what does Wednesday's order tell us about what the court might do in the Mississippi case? What I think the Wednesday order does is tell us that abortion rights are disfavored by a majority of the Supreme Court. You know, it is, I think, a fair criticism of the court that its willingness to use these emergency docket procedures uh, to vindicate certain rights and not others has, you know, allowed the has allowed litigants to use a, a whole bunch of procedural short, shortcuts when they are advocating for rights that a majority of the Supreme Court really thinks are important. That's been particularly true with respect to, for example, religious liberty. 
And when the court's conservative majority doesn't think that the right at issue is super important, it is much less likely to invoke these procedures and more likely to erect procedural hurdles like the conclusion that there wasn't a proper defendant. They couldn't be certain that there was a right to bring a lawsuit at all right now. What I don't think it does is tell you that the court is functionally overruling Roe versus Wade. Um, are there members of the court who want to do that? For sure. Do they have a majority for that? I doubt it. Um, is there a majority for treating Roe versus Wade as a disfavored right so that it's you know harder to vindicate? Yeah. But the idea that this indicates the court is, is going to overrule it so that there is no federal constitutional right to an abortion, I think is a pretty wild overstatement of what the court has done here. It has certainly made clear that the right to abortion is, you know, not as important to the majority as religious liberty uh, is, but where it stacks up as it relates to, you know, gun rights, free speech rights and other rights, I think is, is still unclear. When you talk about the majority, does the majority include John Roberts? Back in 2020, he voted with the court's then four liberal justices to strike down a Louisiana law that required doctors to uh, who wanted to perform abortions to have the right to admit patients at nearby hospitals. And he had did so, you know, you really had the sense not because he necessarily believed that those laws were constitutional, but based on the court's decision in a 2016 case out of Texas. I do think that John Roberts is not the critical vote here when it comes to abortion. Fair enough. I think that he is the sixth vote, not the fifth vote. And the key question is whether... Brett Kavanaugh thinks that a statute is constitutional or unconstitutional in all likelihood. Do I think that the chief justice is in favor of limiting Roe versus Wade? Sure. Do I think he regards it as a mistaken decision? Yes. Do I think he wants to overrule it? I think that's very, very unlikely, but so too for Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, The chief justice in the Louisiana case votes to strike the statute down because he's believes in stare decisis to some extent. He doesn't want the court being perceived as just changing on a whim based on its membership. And in this case from Texas, the chief justice is very concerned about evading the power of the federal courts. So if you just get in front of him a kind of clean case seeking to limit Roe versus Wade, which is what's going on in the Missouri case, I think he might well vote to narrow Roe and, you know, potentially uphold the statute. But the key, it's clear after the rulings in Louisiana and this most recent Texas decision is going to be what Brett Kavanaugh thinks about the scope of Roe versus Wade. Speaking of what Brett Kavanaugh thinks, um, let's move on since we are running out of time, to the eviction moratorium the last week in August. Wasn't a good week for the Biden administration. 
on the shadow docket. And I'm going to start with the court's ruling in the eviction moratorium case. Um, this was not the first time that the court had acted on the eviction moratorium. In late June, the court had left a similar moratorium in place. And at that point, Justice Kavanaugh had provided the key vote, the, the fifth vote to leave the moratorium in place. He said that he you know, probably agreed with the challengers, a group of landlords and real estate agents, that the CDC lacked the power to impose this moratorium. But uh, the moratorium was about to run out at the end of July. Um, and so he was voting to leave it in place until then. Um, but then the CDC extended it again. So the court's ruling in the eviction moratorium wasn't really that much of a surprise to you, was it? No. I mean, Brett Kavanaugh said, don't do this again. And then they did it again. The, the, the Biden administration knew that they were going to lose. They, in the wake of that ruling, upholding the initial CDC moratorium, had refused to extend it, knowing that Kavanaugh had said, you don't have five votes here, you're going to lose. But then they faced enormous political pressure uh, to extend it anyway, and then did their best and lost, as was essentially inevitable. Uh, it's, uh, you know, a good example, along with the Remain in Mexico case, of how we are in the transition between administrations and and you're from Trump to Biden and the procedural rules involved with changing old policies and adopting new policies are tripping up this administration in the same way that they tripped up the Trump administration. Here, the Supreme Court wasn't saying it's unconstitutional to have an eviction moratorium. They were saying that the CDC, there's no law that authorizes the CDC to do this. Congress had passed an initial moratorium and it expired. So go get a, go get a law from Congress. Nobody told the CDC that it could do this. Uh, and it's just another example, I think, of the point that if the Supreme Court majority is disaligned with the administration as it is here, then it is going to, you know, these procedural requirements are going to be super, super duper important, whether it's the requirement of how you bring a lawsuit with the Texas case about how you change a policy, how you adopt a new rule, including the CDC eviction moratorium. The, there, there are a lot of hurdles that more progressive legal theories have to clear in this Supreme Court. Uh, and when you have a five and six justice majority going the other way, you're, you're going to lose most of the cases. Yeah, the, the Remain in Mexico case, there was a, a pretty blatant appeal in the government's brief that said, you know, in essence, you know, you to the, you justices, you intervened when lower courts were telling the Trump administration what to do or what not to do on issues related to foreign policy and immigration. So you should do the same here when it, it's the Biden administration, because now we've got lower courts telling us what to do. But, you know, clearly, you know, as you suggested, to use one of Justice Breyer's favorite phrases, you know, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. It's, it boils it, it boiled down again. To, for the Supreme Court to these procedural requirements. You know, the, the uh, Remain in Mexico case, the court relied on DACA. Uh, you know, yeah. Chief, Chief Justice Roberts really playing the long game here. 
Yeah, so to play that out, the Supreme Court before had held the Trump administration to some pretty strict procedural requirements when it came to immigration in a way that was a little bit surprising. People thought that the the court would broadly uphold the Trump administration's immigration policies across the board. And when it came to certain things, it didn't. And so it was not that the Supreme Court believed that the Biden administration couldn't have a new policy on these issues of whether you have to remain in Mexico in order to apply, but that the Biden administration had kind of moved fast without crossing all its T's and dotting all its I's. And it had, it had applied that same principle to the, to the Trump administration. But, you know, overall, however, there just still remains this deep concern about how much the Supreme court is doing without full consideration, you know, in almost every case that's big and important, the justices have full briefing and oral argument and deep consideration. And over the course of time, they can change their votes and sometimes do. And they produce opinions that are you know, detailed and provide a lot of guidance to litigants, to the administration, to the lower courts. And here we're just getting a lot of very scattershot rulings that have huge consequences for women seeking abortion, for people seeking asylum, what have you. The Senate Judiciary Committee has actually announced that it is going to hold a hearing on the shadow docket. So I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the Senate Judiciary Committee is going to do about the <coughs> shadow docket. Um, but I suppose if, if the shadow docket is no longer in the shadows, like the docket itself. Exactly right. It'll be fascinating to see if anything comes of it. Uh, stay tuned. No, no date or witnesses set yet, um, but uh, I think we'll all be following it pretty closely. Tom Goldstein, thanks for joining oh, us. Thanks for having me. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.